Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mind. But as, a, as with every other week, I'm still your host. With me on my panel today, I have Mr. Cody Bontecue. How are you doing, Cody? Hey, everyone. Just uh, took a quick, quick trip over to Spain, so my background's looking a little different today, but happy to be here. Quick. Define quick from Hawaii to Spain. 33 hours, both each way. <laughs> okay, yeah. Your definition of quick and my definition of quick, uh, I think, differ slightly. Yep. Uh, and then... Today, as our special guest, we have Mr. Marcus Oberliner. How are you doing, Marcus? Hello. Hello. I'm good. So I'm just... Actually, before we started recording, we, talk, we were talking about the book, and I just finished it. I wanted to say that, so I think that's a good start. <laughs> oh, yes. Always feel good, yes. We will get into that book and its contents and details here shortly. Before we get going, Marcus, could you give us the intro about who you are, why you're famous, why people should give you money, etc.? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm famous, actually, but yeah, I'm here, so that's good enough for me. Yeah, my na- name is Marcus Oberlina, and you did a decent job with the last name. I think it, it worked quite well. Thank it's you. Thank Austrian, you. actually. <laughs> and, oh, it's Austrian. Yeah. It's not German. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's important, this differenti- differentiation for us, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a view guy, basically. So I, I wrote a lot of blog articles for, for Vue.js stuff. And recently, I'm also doing a couple of conference talks, also mostly about Vue.js. But more recently, also a lot uh, about testing. Not only Vue.js, but testing in general, testing web applications in general. Uh, okay, so from here, we're going to let Cody drive from here. We're going to talk about testing in view, testing everybody's favorite subject. Oh, yes, okay. Um, in fact, I, I, I do really enjoy testing, um, but I, I have many questions, and, and that is why we brought wanted to invite you on the show, Marcus. I, I know you've been writing this book for a while, and I've been subscribed to your Substack and um. In fact, shout out to Lachlan Miller because I know he interacts with your content pretty often and he's given me a big, strong understanding of testing view applications as well. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I don't know if you want to tell us about your journey writing this book and like what you've learned, what best practices, like there's so many things, um, specifically, you know, the testing triangle, how into component testing are you versus like traditional uh, unit tests or end-to-end tests. It's such a big, broad area. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot lots to unpack here. So maybe I start yeah. with, with the story about the book, how I got going. So I think two years ago from now, I, I thought, yeah, writing a book would be an awesome idea because, you know, I don't have enough to do without writing a book beyond work and, and all that <laughs> stuff. And yeah, I, I Plus, everybody gets rich writing tech books, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I've heard, at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I will see, maybe. <laughs> but I don't have my hopes up too high. But yeah, actually, I <laughs> thought that I might finish it in a couple of months, you know. But yeah, time did go by and it took longer and longer. But yeah, as I said at the beginning, now... I just finished it, and 
maybe yeah when is the book ever finished like uh, i have still have to do some proofreading and stuff like that but yeah two years basically was the journey and now it's finished and i i have to say that i learned a lot in the process this is probably one of the the most important things for me uh, about writing in general and also why why i really enjoyed writing blog articles is that that you learn so much from from uh, thinking about the, the stuff you write about deeper and exploring things you thought you know, but actually you didn't really fully understand yet. So, yeah, yeah. the old adage is that, you know, if you want to learn something, teach it, right? Yeah. Because in order to be yeah. able to teach somebody else effectively, uh, you have to know it yourself. So I think that goes without saying, even though I did say it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely right. true. And so knowing what you know now, Marcus, would you tell yourself two years ago to write this book? <laughs> oh, uh, I was thinking about it uh, recently, and I'm not quite sure, you know, because on the one hand, I think I had a more rosy picture about how it would go, but uh, on the other hand, also all the things I learned, I'm, I'm really happy that I learned them. Maybe, um, maybe I would be more realistic about the reasons why, why I write it, because the reasons that I thought I want to write the book, uh, why I want to write the book, uh, I think those didn't really come come uh, come true. Those things, but but a couple of other learnings I, I didn't expect, and a lot of uh, and the experience itself of, of writing a really long, uh, long coherent uh, thing because writing blog articles is one thing, but you know it's like maybe a thousand or. 2,000 words, but uh, writing a book, it's, it's a much bigger project. And all, all the, the, the meta things I learned doing so, I think at the end, I would say, yeah, it was still worth it. Oh, I'm sure. Do you, do you think um, you'll, have, you'll write another book? And if you were, oh. would this <laughs> book be faster, you know, knowing what you know now with like, the whole meta side of it? Yeah, yeah. I think it, it would be faster. And on the question, if I, if I want to write another book, I think it's uh, currently I'm, I'm in the face of, mm, no, I, I don't think so. But give me a week or two and, and probably I will think yeah. different about it. It's basically the same with, with conferences for me. Whenever I have a conference talk lined up, uh, like, a month or two months before I'm, oh, cool, I will be in this awesome location and, and, <laughs> and speak to, to this awesome people. And then a, a week before the conference, I'm like, oh, why am I doing this to me? <laughs> I will never speak at a conference again. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of weeks go by after the conference and you are, yeah, I should write this. There's, <laughs> right, exactly. I, so I, I am, um, I am, two days away from giving a talk at a conference. Yeah. And so I'm very much in that. What am I doing? I just flew for <laughs> yeah. 30 hours. Like, um, but yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully it's worth it. It's always worth it. Always meet yeah. great people and yeah. learn amazing things. Yeah. But yeah, I, I am very excited for your book. Do you plan on doing a physical print? Or is this a... Oh, I want to avoid it if I can, but maybe if mm -hmm. there are many requests maybe I, I think twice about it but currently i'm not planning to do it because 
Um, from my own experience, I, I like it more to have to have the digital version, and I hope that uh, for others it's the same. But let's see if if there is demand for it. Maybe I, I think about it. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, of course, the portability of ebooks is amazing. But I, I'm, I'm a yeah. sucker for physical books myself. Yeah. Um, but I understand that's, <clears throat> I'm sure, a whole other layer of complexity. Um, yeah. In terms of printing and distribution. Exactly. Well, the problem that I've seen with with written books, especially in the tech world, is how fast things change. Yeah. I mean, you get a book out there. Here's everything great, and boom, everything's changed. All, all of a sudden, your book is not as accurate, you know, really anymore. And that's mm. the benefit of an ebook, obviously, is that it's, it's. I'm guessing it's easier to update that and put it out an updated version or something like that, and it's immediately yeah. available to download and look at versus a, a printed book. So, yeah, I'm like you, Cody. You know, I can really appreciate having a book here on my, you know desk you know that i can look at and refer to and bookmark and that kind of stuff but at the same time you know me with my panoply of screens here in my office i can put a book on one you know and then do my coding on another or something like that so they both have their benefits yeah true yep yep but what you said about updating is definitely an important aspect of it because i have a couple of deck books at home which yeah, basically were updated at the time they, they were released or, or leaving the printing press, basically. And, <laughs> and also, it's, it's still uh, testing, especially, especially modern web applications. I think there is so much not yet really, really explored yet. So I think it's especially fast moving. So, so probably, probably for cases like this, I think it makes sense to have a digital version because what I have to say, and, and for, for other books, for more durable books, like call it that way, I'm also in, in camp uh, printed book because uh, just of the of the feeling of putting in in, in your in your um, how's it called in your putting bookshelf. it the way when you yeah in your bookshelf. Thank you very yep. much. <laughs> when you finished reading and seeing seeing all the books that you actually read, it's it's definitely a better feeling. If you have, uh, yeah, if you also have um, printed books, but for technical books, I'm not too sure if if it's worth it. Yeah, I can look sure. back in my bookshelf. You can sort of, you, know, you can't really see it here. My camera's not turned this way, but I have incredibly modern, up-to-date books like, uh, let's see, PHP 5, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Learning jQuery, Apache uh, <laughs> Solar 1.4, if you know anything about solar. Uh, you know, the uh, O'Reilly HTML and XHTML uh, ProGit, the first, the first ProGit book. So, yeah, uh, they take up some great space on my bookshelf and look really good until you start looking at the titles and think, oh boy, he needs some new books. <laughs> but, uh, nice, right. I'm sure they're being put to good use. I have, well, I have one book that I called Bookzilla. That was uh, a book on Drupal 7 when Drupal 7 first came out and I was in that world. And it it's really great because it's about probably three or four inches high and elevates my uh, one of my computer monitors up so I have it <laughs> at a better level. So. <laughs> but your brain is stronger from due to reading that entire book, right? 
Yes. Yes. I just, I look at it and sort of imagine myself lifting it with my thoughts and it makes my head stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's get into testing a little bit. Um, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit, Marcus. And um, I don't know if you want to just like, how is your book structured? How do you, how do you start introducing testing um, to your readers? And are, are you building off of like fundamentals and kind of scaling? Or is it more like, are you interested in this topic? Go to this chapter. Yeah. So I moved a couple of chapters uh, around a couple of times during writing the book. This is also something that's rather un- unexpected that, you know, you, you write something and then you reference it in a, in a, in a section uh, further down and, and stuff like that. So as a side note, this is something you don't expect when writing a book that you actually have to reorganize it constantly. But uh, I settled on a structure where at the beginning I start with explaining my view on a couple of um, testing approaches. Like there are so many names or uh, variants of how you can test your applications. So people talk about end-to-end tests, about component tests, about unit tests, about integration tests, about uh, all kinds of different testing approaches. And sometimes those are really different approaches and sometimes those are only different uh, names for basically the same. So yeah, I start with with, uh, my view on, on those things and also um, with my definition of a, of a couple of things, because I decided to to settle for for um, my own definition for a couple of tests. Maybe it's uh, on the one hand, it's it's kind of risky, I think, to reinvent um, names for for testing approaches. But on the other hand, on the other hand, things like uh, end-to-end testing or integration testing, um, many people have different. Uh, views on on how uh, an end-to-end test look or how an, an integration test looks. So I thought maybe it's better to have my own vocabulary and and don't have all this baggage. Maybe some people carry with them from from previous experiences. So I decided to go um, with calling calling the testing approaches end-to-end tests, application tests, component tests, and unit tests. So end-to-end tests for tests that really go end-to-end from the user interface to a database, for example, and application tests, which only test the user interface, and component tests, which test little components, and unit tests, which test um, functions and classes and stuff like that. So this is the beginning of the book, so explaining the basics and, and clarifying my thoughts on, on things. And then we go into testing strategy and um, the most important principles that I think are important for, for writing good tests. And um, also recently I did a video about the one of the following chapters, which is about how to set up everything perfectly. So I called it the perfect test environment. And yeah, and then step by step, I go into much, much more detail about um, how to write good component tests, for example, and how to write good application tests. And I finish everything up with, uh, with a chapter about um, practicing test-driven development and yeah, where we 
build a little shopping list application, step-by-step writing tests first, and then the implementation. And this is basically the last and final chapter. And um, yeah, that's that's the basic structure of it. Nice. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, it, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy that. I, I understand, like you were saying, it's, it's risky to re- redefine or, or like set up your own definitions. But at the same time, that does kind of create a universal language within your book that is um, valuable. Exactly. And that, that's interesting. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, um, I guess, I'm curious, I have like my own, I, I'm curious what your opinion is about um, like component testing or, or or really, I guess, what to test, what are mm. the most essential tests to write? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then where to go from there. Yeah, that's, um, and a very interesting question in two ways, because first of all, that's one area where I basically changed my view completely from when I started writing the book to now. And secondly, it's also an essential question, I think, because um, one mistake I made when I started out with with writing tests is that I wrote a lot of tests for in every category. So basically, I wrote a lot of unit tests, I wrote a lot of component tests, and I also wrote, wrote a lot of end-to-end tests. And, um, and I was always of the opinion that you should focus most on component tests and unit tests, because that's the, the general knowledge that, you know, those are the fastest types of tests, and so you should focus on them. And there is some truth to that, but also, if you think about it, they don't really give you a lot of confidence that your application actually does what it's supposed to do. Because you can you can have a component test for every, each and every one of your components, and still you hit the deploy button and everything breaks down when, when the user interacts with it. So that's why I now think that the most valuable tests are what I call in the book application tests, which basically are end-to-end tests that um, don't actually go to your services if you work with microservices, but use uh, but mock third-party API requests and stuff like that, but test actual features from the perspective of a real user interacting with the application. So I advocate for mostly focusing or first focus on application tests. So write an application test for a new feature you want to write. And then if you feel the need, maybe write a component test or two. So before we get going any further, could we, one thing I like to do is define terms. So we've mentioned a few different kinds of tests here. And then I've got a couple of things to say too. Can you tell me what the difference is between a component test and a unit test? Yeah, that's also an interesting aspect because when I, in in the first iteration of my book, I I started calling both component tests and unit tests unit tests because my uh, rationale was that a component test is basically a unit test for a component. This was my thinking. But then I changed my mind a little bit because um, I thought that unit tests Many people think that unit tests have to be very, very small. And I think 
that's maybe true for for unit tests of functions and and classes and stuff like that, but not so much for component tests. I think component tests don't need to be as small as possible, but can also be uh, yeah little um, because you basically you shouldn't mock any child components, for example, and that was that is was a lot of people what a lot of people are doing is that they when they do component tests that they mock child components for example because from their experience from doing unit testing they think it's the right thing to do so i i, I um, settled on using two different terms so component test testing a view component or some ui component and the unit test testing, for example, a, a function or a class or, or smaller bits or a JavaScript module. Or, okay, so it's not necessarily listed, to, excuse me, limited to JavaScript. I mean, to me, the way I've always understood a unit test is it's a strictly code test. Okay, there's no UI involved. There's no, you know, buttons, no browser, nothing. It's just you're running your code. You want to test a specific portion of code that does a certain function. Maybe they go out and searches. Right. And so you want to test your code, everything else you need, you mock, right? You create fake, whatever, a fake API, fake UI, whatever. And then you run your code and, uh, and, and see if it does what you do. Now, considering that is a component test code only, or if it's UI, I mean, a view component is creating UI. I mean, unless you have like a non-rendering component, a view component is creating UI. Yeah. So how do you specifically test a component when a component is part of a bigger, you know, picture on a page or a puzzle on mm. a page. Mm. Yeah. So I think about it that way that for a component test to be useful, the component has to include um, um, a logic that's not uh, not only rendering something like. Usually the, the most simple UI component you can imagine gets some props and renders some uh, HTML or, or virtual, virtual DOM object. But oftentimes we have components that are a little bit more complex than that. Maybe they do uh, they transform some data or there are complex um, conditions in there if this then emit event X when clicking there, and if that, then, then uh, emit event Y when clicking here, and so on. And whenever this is the case, I think a component test makes sense. And then uh, a component test, how I define it, actually tests a UI element, like uh, and interacting with the test interacts with the UI component like a, a real user would do, like clicking a button, and um, we also focus only on the, the public API of this component. So the HTML that is rendered or the virtual DOM object is, that is generated and, and the, the interactions that a user can do, like clicking a button or entering some stuff, uh, some text in an input field and stuff like that. But the component test is, is kind of a mix of two concerns. Like when we think about a unit test, you write the test from the perspective of a developer using, for example, a function or a class or something like that. But with a component test, 
first, uh, first of all, you look at it like a user interacting with a tiny bit of the UI, like the, 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 the UI that's uh, generated by this component. But you also look at it from the perspective of, of a developer using the component in their, in their uh, UI somewhere, because there are things that only the user can interact with, like the button and, and the, the HTML that is rendered. But there are also things like props and, and events that are remitted by the component, which are only in, interesting for, for other developers using the component. So, yeah, the so component test is, is kind of, yeah, it's in between of, of end-to-end tests and unit tests, and it has features of both, basically, like... You interact with it like a real user would do, but you also have some aspects that you own, that are only interesting for other developers using the component, like with unit tests. So in my day-to-day, I work with a pretty huge uh, view app that uses Laravel on the back end, and we use Elasticsearch for a lot of our data. It's pretty large, and we use Laravel's uh, front-end testing framework called Dusk. And... And if you're a PHP developer, it's nice because you write the test in PHP, even though it opens your browser and runs through everything. And so, you know, for any new feature, we're always writing tests to go through and operate this, to log in, click this button, do you see this, do you see this, you know, make your assertions and so on. Is it not a safe assumption to assume that if your end-to-end tests are working, then your back-end code is working as well? If not, why? Yeah, that's that's a tricky question because because there are two or not only two. There are multiple ways how you nowadays can structure your your applications and your your backend in particular. Like with Laravel, I really like the the Laravel approach, and if you do it the Laravel way, um, you, they they got you covered in in most. Um, testing regards. So like with Dusk, you mentioned it, you have end-to-end testing that really is tailored to the needs of a Laravel application. And with a Laravel application, you typically have a more monolithic application where you have your database and everything in, you know, in one unit. And in that mm. case... No, that's not true. Just not to contradict but no you can uh there's ways you can can uh mix and match with other front ends um so in our case it's view and all we're using is rest apis to communicate mm-hmm. with laravel if we weren't using laravel we could use another you yeah. know back end that has another set of rest apis so laravel can be monolithic in that you use laravel and then if you use blade templates for instance mm-hmm. uh or you know their built-in uh templating language but with things like inertia, which is something I'm a big fan of, mm. uh, even just REST APIs, it's not necessarily monolithic. It can just be your back end. Yeah. I'm, I, was thinking, I was thinking about the term monolithic because I, I didn't want to use it, because it was, but it was the, the first one that came to my mind. What I, I meant was that a typical Laravel application is like uh, you have your backend and your backend is communicating with with the database, and then you have a front end which might be blade templates or it might be a React application or it might be a view application. But it's typically um, 
very close together and you don't have multiple services. So basically what I'm talking about is the differentiation between microservices and a traditional Laravel application. Because mm-hmm. I, I focus on traditional because we also have, uh, at my company, we have um, more or less a microservices-based uh, system also built with Laravel, which make up the, the microservices. But the, the important piece here is, I think, where the database schema is located. So that's actually not in the book, but a topic I want to explore further after I have the, the book is written, that basically you have to think in two different modes. If you have control over your database, what you want to test with, for example, with your task tests in Laravel is really the, the whole application also writing stuff to the database. And when you run your, your task tests, as you said, you basically also all, also know that your backend works correctly because you know you test everything. But in a microservices environment, things become a little bit trickier, or not only a little bit trickier, but much trickier actually, <laughs> because then you can't do stuff like seed your database for some test cases. With with Dusk, you can seed your database with uh, data, with, with just the data you need for for executing a particular test case and stuff like that, and with microservices, it gets much more complicated to to do testing in that way. So, um, I forgot what was the initial question that led us to this. <laughs> so, uh, well, what I had asked you was if your end-to-end testing is working mm-hmm. adequately and your testing is passing, then is it safe to assume that all your underlying code, yeah, in other words, what you would cover with unit testing component mm-hmm. tests is sufficient and is that true or not? And if so, why not? Um, I think I can I can sort of answer that question on my own first in that it depends on how thorough your end-to-end tests are. I mean, you could write for all kinds of use cases, but if you miss a particular use case where an error is going to show up, then you're not going to catch it, obviously. But that's true for any testing. You could write all your unit yeah. tests and miss a piece of code that <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah. work. So, I mean, I, that sort of goes without saying, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. When when you have end-to-end testing place for everything, uh, assume you have uh, end-to-end testing place for every feature, or at least every important feature of our application, then we can assume that everything works correctly. Our components and our backend and everything uh, works smoothly. And that's basically the, the perfect world scenario. And in that case, when you still want to write component tests is when they help you during the development phase, I think. So when you write on a, on a complex piece of UI or, or when you work on a complex piece of UI or you work on some complex piece of logic, then still, even though you actually don't really need them to make sure everything works correctly when you deploy, they still often are helpful to uh, during development to come up with a better design or in general aid during, during development to have faster feedback whether what do the code you just wrote works correctly or not. Yeah, just to just to add on to that, I'm I'm a big fan of of that. I, I suppose it's test driven development TDD where you you do that you create your spec file and you just create a handful of it statements 
of essentially your to-dos of what you want this component to do, what you want this page to do, whatever it is you're trying to, to, to do. And, and yeah, you just start writing out the tests for, or, or not even writing out the tests, just simply writing out that sentence of what you hope to someday achieve with this code that you're testing um, is a great way to keep me on track um, and like lead development and, and like be very confident with the code that I'm writing as I'm writing it. Yeah, exactly. What you just said is that it helps you to, to keep you on track. I think that's also uh, a not obvious factor when, when practicing TDD is that it helps you stay focused and also sometimes it helps you to, to stay motivated because you know you, you get this quick feedback and you get this nice green uh, output in your console whenever you write uh, some code that's, that passes the test. I think that's also a very helpful aspect of, of testing. And, and it helps you just think through it yeah. as well, right? Just like, what do I actually, what am I trying to solve right now? Yeah. Um, sounds easier said than done. Yeah, yeah, true. But but I, I do want to just mention one thing that I believe is a key reason behind component tests is um, outside of just like traditional end to end is um, when you're when you're building like a third party library, a component library, you want to have these individual pieces um, tested and, and well thought out as well. Um, but I, I could be wrong. I'm not a library maintainer, but I, that's kind of my perspective. I assume that's a lot of where this benefit and innovation is taking place is um, more in like these library, the library side. But one thing uh, I want to add to this is this, yes, I think it's very helpful for, for component libraries to have those component tests. I think this makes a lot of sense. Yet also there is some risk, I think, to, to overdoing it like, um, writing component tests for, for example, for, for a simple button and testing every every variant with every prop that the button can take and, and stuff like that. I think you have to be careful to not overdo it with component tests, even in this use case. Yeah, just uh, checking off those screen boxes can be addicting too, right? It makes you feel like yeah. you're doing something. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. totally unnecessary. Um, just asserting true, you're just, it'll pass. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm guilty of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I think we all are. But, yeah. Uh, so does that answer your question, Steve? What are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, one, one size fits all type of answer a lot of it as with any case is going to depend on your application how big how small uh, you know how it functions it's just i was just thinking in general um yep. you know end-to-end uh, -end versus individual pieces and how they fit together yeah no doubt i i'm yeah i personally lean on the end and then testing it, it's i agree it's kind of it's like it's really Kind of an easy way of testing i guess I, I, I don't know i think like with these modern like playwright and cypress it's it's yeah. really kind of easy to just automate and simulate what an actual user is going to be doing um, yeah. which does give me a lot of confidence um, yeah that's true where where i struggle with it though is um 
is when I rely on third-party services, um, such as like Stripe or um, mm-hmm. you know OAuth, OAuth login. I think that's when this uh, starts to get a bit more complicated, and I, I haven't found like a good solution there outside of uh, just mocking. I suppose. Yeah, that's yeah. Also- when those when those environments go down, that can hose you. We had a case the other day where we're using a service called Pusher. And Pusher was down the entire day. And so all of her tests were failing all day. And we sort of knew that. So that's any risk anytime you're depending upon an external service or application that you have no control over. Yeah. yeah. One thing, it's, it's third-party services are basically the, the worst dependency you can have for, for testing. But also, on the other hand, you also can can confidently mock them because, you know, you don't really have control about them anyway, if they work or not. But where it gets a little bit uh, more complicated is, as I said before, with with microservices, where where you want to make sure that your application works with your own microservices, basically, but still you have kind of the same problem, some of the same problems that you also have with with third-party services that you don't really have control over them because maybe some other team is responsible for this microservice. And um, if you want to test a particular use case, you maybe you need to get uh, some specific response from a microservice, microservice, but you can't really control it and stuff like that. That's when it, when I think it. Uh, this is an area where where we don't have really good tools and approaches yet, I think, because, you're, you know, you, you can always mock those microservices, and I think this is what, what most people are doing, but still, it kind of, you kind of lose some confidence you you try to get with, with end-to-end tests, typically. And and those mocks, um, you know, mocking a microservice that an other team within your organization provides requires a good amount of communication to be able to generate a good mock, um, which in, in my experience has been harder, easier said than done. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the perfect test environment. Is there such a thing? And if so, what is it? <laughs> yeah, I try I try to, to build the perfect test environment. Of course, it's perfect. It's all, always, you know, something we only can strive to but not really achieve but yeah at least um, I attempted to do it with with my book and what I say what makes the perfect test environment is that it enables us to follow the most important principles for for testing and for me I I have three important principles or three principles that I think are important to really write maintainable tests and tests that are not flaky and and in general what I call good tests. And those principles are, first of all, we want to decouple our tests from the test framework. We want to decouple our tests from implementation details. And we also want to decouple our tests from the user interface. And I think Decoupling from implementation de- de- details is something we all heard and we all, well, most of us who did some testing already know that we, we should write tests that are not tied to implementation details of our code. But the other two might be uh, not uh, 
that um, common knowledge or maybe even somewhat controversial. So I start with decoupling from the test framework. So this is one important aspect of, of the, the perfect test environment I try to set up that we don't use, for example, Playwright or Cypress uh, directly, but we have a generic driver interface that we use to build or to write our tests. So whenever we, we want to switch test frameworks, we don't need to touch or change all of our tests, but we can write a new driver for the new test framework and then we can run all our tests in this new test framework um, without changing any test at all. And as an example, in the book, I do this with retest and playwright. And I do this because this shows what's really possible because usually one would think, yeah, there is there are tools like Playwright and Cypress which run your tests in a real browser and um, with a real DOM and, and stuff like that. And then there are tools like retest and chest and stuff like that which you can use to write unit tests and maybe component tests, but not really those end-to-end um, -end tests or I call them application tests. But in reality, when you have a single-page application, you can basically render your whole application in a virtual DOM the same way you do with, with single components when doing component testing. And using this, this driver setup, this generic driver setup, you can switch between running your tests in Playwright, so running your tests in a real browser, but taking some time because, you know, running a real browser has some overhead and the, the real DOM is not as fast as a virtual DOM in Node.js. And you can switch between the, the real browser tests to running your tests in retest in a virtual DOM, which is very, very fast. So one talk I did, I think Jacob talked about this in, in the last podcast episode that was released. Yeah, I started uh, the tests on, so on the stage, I started the tests at the beginning running in Cypress. And somewhere at the end of the talk, the, the tests were still running and I started the same test suite in parallel in VTest. And the VTest test suite um, finished in, in a couple of seconds while the, the Cypress tests were still running. So you, by, by using this driver interface, first of all, you can swap out your test framework whenever you want, you know, because nowadays um, Playwright is more popular than Cypress, for example, and so you might decide to use Playwright instead of Cypress. And if you use a driver, you can just do this. It maybe takes you an hour or two hours max, and you are done. All your tests run now in a, in, a, in a different test framework. But you can also have the benefit of having two modes, basically. If you want to have the guarantee that your tests work or that your application works in a real browser, you can run your tests in Playwright, but it takes a while. But if you only want to have quick feedback, because maybe you did some major refactoring or something like that, and you want to get very fast feedback, you can run your tests in Vtest, for example, and get the feedback in a couple of seconds. So this is the, the first aspect of, of the perfect test environment. And, and sorry, how, how, how do you control between these two um, environments? It, it, are you just passing in a flag, I'm assuming? Yeah, so it's a little hacky how I do it because 
um, there is no no default or no standard way how you can easily do this. I tried a couple of things. I tried to do it with sim linking, like saying when I run the tests in vtest, I swapped the, the, the driver file and used the vtest driver file, for example. And this worked, but it was not very elegant, I think. And the solution I go with now is to use uh, resolve aliases. I use a resolve alias in the vtest config, for example. So in the vtest config, I say when I import this module with this name, then resolve it to the vtest driver file. And for playwright, I specify it in a separate TypeScript config file that's only used by playwright. So when I run the playwright test, then playwright picks up this TypeScript configuration file and in there, there's also a resolve alias, which then resolves the package to, to the playwright driver. That's pretty. So, in your, do you tend to write or sorry, run most of your tests in vtest in your in your personal projects, and then maybe do a once a day in playwright. Yeah. Basically, when I so how I do it is that whenever I, as I said, I want this quick feedback because I changed. I did not change in a single component or something like that, but I, I changed some uh, stuff that really where I have to change a lot of files throughout the whole application. Then I think it's the perfect use case to run all those tests in vtest. But whenever I work on on a new feature or something like that, what I try to do is that I have Playwright open in, in watch mode. So that I automatically see the tests running whenever I make a change to my code or to my tests. So that's, those are those two modes. So when I focus on, on one feature and I'm building a new feature or I make some big changes to a particular feature, then I try to use the, the watch mode of Playwright so I can see the UI and, and have this visual feedback as well. But when I make more refactoring kind of, of changes throughout the whole application, then then I use vtest to get this quick feedback. And I'm curious, so when you originally started writing this book, you were doing it in Cypress, yeah. right? It, yeah. So is this a perfect test environment? Was this inspired by that change? Yeah, this this change made, made it actually made it easy to, to change my mind and use Playwright because you know that the, the right. driver is the same, so I didn't have to read write the tests and stuff like that. Um, but it was the other way around. So I already had this driver interface and then uh, I decided to, to change, to make the change to, to Playwright. And the reason I chose, so the reason I chose Cypress was because the, the user interface of Cypress, the UI mode of Cypress and the watch mode of Cypress, they were a lot better than what Playwright had to offer. And even though Playwright did um, made some improvements to, to their UI mode and, and also added the watch mode a couple of months ago, it's still I would still say that the, the Cypress UI is better, but still I think the, the Playwright UI is good enough for me and Playwright is just a lot faster and that's why I decided to make the, the switch to Playwright because I think having fast tests is, is very important. Yeah, I mean, it's that's kind of the the killer feature of Playwright is the speed. And, um, yeah. 
I believe there's a handful of other features. Uh, I don't know if Cypress supports iframes. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of I kind of lost track. It it seems like Playwright is is taken over in that realm. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. How yeah. does testing work in an agile environment? That's one point you listed here. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I guess the first thing to to define would be agile. Um, you know, since it first came yeah. into the lexicon and everybody was doing agile, we got to do agile, 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 scrum, <laughs> agile, you know, and then people sort of figure out, well, agile is good for some organizations and maybe not for others. Waterfall ain't so bad in some cases. Mm. Uh, first of all, how would you define agile? And second, how does, how are the two linked together? How does testing work in an agile environment? Mm. Yeah, how do I define Agile? Um, I don't think it's synonymous with, with Scrum. I think a lot of people think uh, say Agile and, and mean Scrum. And I think that's not really how I would define Agile. I think those are not the same thing. Um, okay, I was just throwing terms out there. They may not necessarily yeah. be linked. <laughs> you know, I've worked in Agile environments with Scrum Masters and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Okay, let's meet, talk about what we're doing. All right, we're good to go. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. They are often often practice uh, together, but but I think you can do agile without Scrum, but you can't do Scrum without agile. I think that's that's uh, how somebody put it in a video. So, um, so for for the for the matter of the book, how I define agile is, or not how I define agile, but the aspects of agile that are important for the book are working in in iterations, basically. So you have a broad idea what you want to build, like the typical user story or something like that. And then step by step, you you get more granular. So yeah, you start out with, with the big idea and then you break it down. And in, a, in, in the book, what I show is how you can take a real user story how to come up with the user story and then define acceptance criteria for the user story and then build upon those acceptance criteria to write your tests. And so how those two things, how uh, working in an agile way and doing test-driven development, how those play together really nicely. Because I think when when the people, was it the Gang of Four or how, how were they called? They came up with the, the agile method. Um, they said one important aspect is technical excellence. And Kent Beck, I think, he always had had test-driven development in mind when he talked about Agile because having tests in place enables you, having the right kind of tests in place, let's put it that way, enable you to iterate and move fast and make changes without having to fear to to break something. And I think it's important to say having the, the right kind of tests in place because there are also tests which do the opposite and 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 make it very hard to make changes. But yeah, to come back to how to define Agile, I, I don't want to do uh, uh, the, the definition of Agile because I probably get it wrong. But I think in the way how it matters for the book is, like I said, working it in iterations and with uh, and and breaking down user stories and acceptance criteria and how this can help you 
drive your your testing strategy. Okay, so how does that? How does your testing, your per- perfect testing platform, and everything we've been talking about work? Or is there anything different in Agile? I, I guess compared to uh, another maybe non-Agile environment. I mean, to me, you know, I've worked in multiple different types of workflows, and your app needs to work no matter how you're doing it. You know, you need yeah. to test it. So, so what's the difference? I think at the end of the day, when you when we look at the outcome, there probably is not too great of a difference. Um, in terms of how your tests look, because also when working in a waterfall way, uh, at some point you have have specifications which you you need to fulfill, and I think that's basically the the, the outcome should be more or less the same regardless of how you work. You have uh, some way to specify what your application needs to do, and then you have tests that ensure that it fulfills those criteria, and it's the same when when working in an agile way. But what I focus on, focus on is how, how the process looks like. You, you have a user story and what then? Then come the acceptance criteria. Then you have acceptance criteria and then um, how do you translate those to tests? So this is, this is the, the part that I focus on. Yeah, and that, that kind of goes right into that test-driven development we were talking about, right? You can almost copy and paste the acceptance criteria into what you're expecting from the tests themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, in the examples, uh, I did it like a one-to-one relationship from the, the acceptance criteria to the to the descriptions of the tests. In the real world, it might be not that uh, that uh, perfect, but <laughs> but you know, it's it's in a book you can try to do show right. what the perfect world could look like <laughs> and then yeah. it's rare when a jira ticket yeah. is that well defined right yeah, <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> we want this to happen okay yeah. um that's that's neat though so that's kind of how your your book is structured you're you're actually taking people through like a basically a real world real world example of like almost like a document explaining the features or the you know that that we want built turning that into tickets extracting those t- tickets into like a feature, individual features and turning yeah. that into tests and then features as well. Yeah. Um, I tried to be very close to how, or, or I, I tried to make it clear how you can apply what you read in the book to, to your daily daily practice. And I think uh, to some degree I, I succeeded, but I wanted to, I actually wanted to do more, to more about uh, of that, but yeah, that's the perfectionist in me, I think. But it was the idea to, you know, write a book that it's uh, that you can really um, see how you can apply this in your in your daily practice, or where you get inspired how you can improve your your workflows to to introduce testing development. Yeah, I think I think that's like actually like a beautiful way of presenting that idea that I don't I've never heard anybody talk about before. Because that, that is like a very real um, way of, of actually writing tests. And most people, here's your function, I'll write a test for it. All right, yeah. next. And mm. um, it's never that simple, right? Yeah. And so I, I think there's always a kind of a gap while yeah. learning how to write proper tests. Yeah. Um, especially, especially front-end tests. I think front-end yeah. tests can get 
uh, very cluttered, very um, difficult to test parts of the yeah. brain. And what you hinted at, I think it's it's a hard problem for like writing blog articles and and books and stuff like that. That you know you you basically you have to show the most minimal examples, and sometimes it's hard for people to to um, to really translate this in in a real application because they think like yeah showing this this very straightforward simple example it's easy to to write tests for this uh, or write the code like that but in, in my real world application things are messy and stuff like that but i really try my best to to work around this a little bit but it's hard actually because you know if you write the book with messy code then <laughs> nobody understands it anymore so <laughs> yeah it's that um what's that that meme where it's like the four panels and it's like how to draw an owl yeah the first the first square is a circle the second square is like three circles and then you know the third is a perfect owl yeah. and um that is kind of the way it's presented but because otherwise it's you know you're writing a textbook for a college course depending on mm. how how in-depth you want to go and um mm. i do think i want to say it's refactoring i want to say that was part of the gang gang of four martin fowler wrote it um, but I, I do remember like that was like the very first chapter, like 20 pages are just reading through a program before it's refactored and then after it's mm. refactored. <laughs> it's um, it's kind of hard to get through um, yeah. at times, but it's also written in Java, which doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, judging by my recruiter emails, Java and JavaScript are the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> Right. Um, so tell, tell us a bit about your imposter syndrome. Um, <laughs> what's going on there? Obviously, from my point of view, you're, you have much, so much knowledge to share. So, um, But did you not feel that way? Yeah, it, you know, it varies. Uh, sometimes there are those moments where you think, oh, yeah, I'm the smartest guy that ever walked on this planet. But those are rare. <laughs> I've never <laughs> had that problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very rare for me too. But mostly it's like, you know, you you um, if you put your stuff out there in the world, it's, it's kind of frightening because there are so many eyes on you who can judge you. But... But still, I think it's it's important to, in two ways. I think it's important in two ways. First of all, if you want to learn more, I think you have to share what you know or what you think to know. Because it's also a, a good thing that people challenge you. And it's also a good thing to have the, the pressure on you that you have, actually have to deliver something decent. Because... If you if you plan to release something, at least you know you know you have to do more than the bare minimum. And yeah, with, with imposter syndrome, it's like every time I, I release a new chapter of the book or I, I write um, something or I, I create a video, for example, then I think to myself, oh yeah, that's uh, that's just not good enough. There are people who have much more experience in, in this or that, and why why do I even write the book? And the thing is, for, for I think it, it's true, you know, because there, there are people who know more about a particular aspect uh, of this or that. And you always have to remind yourself, first of all, you don't have to write, you don't need to write the book 
who is the best book in every regard, because that's basically impossible. And also there is a lot of worth in, in combining multiple concepts. And then is this is the area where it is like, yeah, there are people who know more a lot more about unit testing, for example. And there are people who know a lot more about um, writing a particular style of, of end-to-end tests for an architecture with microservices or, or stuff like that. So there are always people who know more about, about one area. But if you combine all the things you know about different kinds of tests and, and bring them together in a, in a way that that adds value, then I think it's, it's still... Um, I always have to remind myself that there is a lot of value in, in doing this and that you don't need to write the perfect book on everything and that it is okay to have that there here and there are some flaws. And also, at the end of the day, it's all, as we know, it, it always depends, you know, <laughs> because, <laughs> because for, for one team, the approach I describe in the book might be perfectly right but for another team who have a completely different experience, for them, it might be wrong. And I think, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay, too. Well, I think there's a flip side to what you're talking about as well. And, you know, I speak after being, having been in open source for 18 years now. Um, is that, yeah, there's pressure. There's people. There are people that will be jerks. You know, whether it's in a GitHub issue, whether it's in some sort of chat room. I'm dating myself when I say going back to IRC chat when that was the way to, <laughs> to chat. Um, there are people who are jerks. You idiot, what do you think of doing this, you know? But on the flip side, there are a lot of people that will say, one, hey, this is cool, but you could improve this. They'll give you the perspective that maybe you as one person don't have. Two, there are people that will say, dang, I was thinking about doing the same thing. I'm, I'm glad somebody else, it's not just me who has these questions or is wondering how to do this. And they'll be willing to to help you out, uh, you know. So there, there's the good with the bad, you know. And I think the term I've heard used is developing in the open, right? You're you're yeah. doing it, you're putting it out there, you know. You don't necessarily have to go to the extent of Twitch streaming, you know, where people are actually watching you type and Google for terms that you've forgotten that ever, you think every other developer never forgets. I tried um, this as well, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff too. You don't have to go to that extent, but just putting an open repo out there and saying, "Hey, this is what I'm doing." My experience has been, you know, if I see somebody that's doing something it's like, oh, that's cool. I was thinking of doing the same thing. Or I've I've had feedback myself where I can I remember in my early Drupal days, I saw somebody do a video about doing this and I created what's called a module, WordPress, you call it a plugin that sort of encapsulated everything. And the feedback was like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to use this. I've been wondering how to do this too. So, so uh, I guess it just depends on your particular situation, but there's there's the pressure. You know, it's probably more a self-imposed pressure that mm. you put on yourself of having to be perfect, versus the pressure that says, "Screw it! I'm going to put this out there. If you like it, use it. If you don't, don't use it." And you'll get a lot of good feedback because people admire someone that's willing to get past that fear of of public speaking. You know, of being out in the public and say, "Hey, I like this." And I'll, I'll give an example. And this is sort of related. A uh, number of years ago, I got uh, hired to do a job I'd really wanted to do, which was firefighting. And I got hired as a professional firefighter. And uh, I had a fellow employee right before I left where I was at uh, 
I was in the copy or the break room one day and there was a lady and I knew who she was, didn't know her. And she said something to me about what I was doing and said, doing what you're doing will probably inspire other people to follow their dreams as well. And I was just blown away. I was thinking, you know, here I am just sort of doing my thing and getting in my training and doing all this stuff. And here all these other people are seeing it and inspiring them. And I had no clue, you know, that I was doing that. So I dare say that, you know, taking this risk and uh, putting yourself out there like that is probably an inspiration to other people too. One, that you're providing some really good information uh, that they could use. And two, it's like, hey, this guy's putting stuff out there. Maybe I should do the same thing. Mm. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And, and one thing I always try to remember is whenever, especially for, for conference talks, is that everybody in the audience, or not, maybe not everybody, but most of the people in the audience are, are your fans, you know, at least in this moment. Not they are, they, are, they are not the fans like the groupies of, of rock stars, but at this moment <laughs> when you are standing on, on, on the stage, they are like, yeah, they, they want you to do well. You know, they, they don't want that you uh, that you fail or, or even if you fail in some way, then it's not like they think about uh, you in, in, in that you are a failure, but that actually it's you know everyone who who goes to a conference want, want to share ideas and connect with people and that's especially true for, for the speakers. Cool. All right, so we're getting a little long here, so we need to move on to picks. Uh, but before we do that, uh, is there anything else you want to, any shameless plugs to put out there? Uh, where are you on your book? You said you finished writing it. I assume that means it's not out the door yet. So what do you have left to do? Yeah, I finished writing it and people can already pre-order it. What I still need to do is to uh, make a couple of videos because... I think especially with, with DDD, with test stream development, it's it's good to see somebody actually practicing it. So yeah, that's still open. I will, will do a couple of videos which will be added to the book. But yeah, people can already pre-order it. Um, go to goodviewtest.com, I think is the yes. <laughs> correct address. Right. And yeah, and also I have a couple of shameless plugs. So <laughs> I just just started to be more active on LinkedIn because, you know, Twitter or X is kind of shaky nowadays. So, yeah, check check out my LinkedIn profile if you want. And also, yeah, I also started to do workshops. So if your company is interested, get in contact with me. And you also have a Substack, right? Yeah, exactly. For, for the book, I also have a Substack where... People could read the book uh, while I was writing it. Now it's basically finished, but still I will release some some new stuff on the Substack as well. And everybody who subscribes to the Substack will also get the book. So you can't do anything wrong if you subscribe for the Substack. And what is well. the URL for that? Oh, I think it's goodviewtests.substack.com. I think. Yep. Okay, and we'll have all these links in the. Uh in the show notes for sure. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Marcus, and talking about uh, view testing. I know that generally, you know, when I've had conversations about testing, they tend to be pretty generic. So it's always nice to hear something that's that's more view-specific. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So picks. Picks are the part of the show where we get to talk about 
uh, anything we want. Well, within reason, of course. Uh, <laughs> we don't want to be uh, subpoenaed or sued by the FCC or something. But anyway, um, I will go first. Uh, first thing I'm going to pick before I get to the high point of, of my episodes, which are the dad jokes of the week. Um, there's a new show on Netflix, and I referenced it a couple of weeks ago when I was looking for it, and it wasn't out yet. And I talked about a show with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen called The Spy. Uh, this one is called Spy Ops. And it's on Netflix. And the first season has eight episodes. And it's true stories about uh, true things that have happened uh, over the years. And there's stories from different agencies. So the first episode is uh, talks about the CIA and Operation Jawbreaker, which is when they first went into Afghanistan right after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, I skipped the second episode, but the third one is uh, a really famous spy story uh, with MI6, the British intelligence service, and how they got a spy named Oleg, Oleg, thanks Gordievsky, out of Moscow from under the eye of the KGB. Yeah, it's a famous story, but the, some of the details of the story are, are fascinating, are really interesting. And then the next two episodes I really want to watch are the ones about Mossad and how they went after the killers from the Black September killings of the Israeli athletes in the Olympics in, I want to say, 19. 72, 72 Munich was where that happened. So, but it's fascinating uh, stories uh, for sure. Really great details. So the dad jokes of the week, these are, as I mentioned before, the, the high point I get, you wouldn't believe the, uh, the requests I get from people like, will you stop doing them? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so very short one. I actually come from a family. I don't know if I mentioned, mentioned this before, of magicians. Uh, and as a result, I have two half sisters, <laughs> right? You know, the Cody, where they cut them in anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I moved a little while ago and I actually moved into, I figured this would save on air conditioning bills. And I moved into a new igloo and my friends were, Hey, that's awesome. And they threw me a surprise housewarming party. <laughs> now I'm homeless. Oh, no. <laughs> right. And then uh, finally, um, the other way, the other day I went to my doctor and he told me that I have high blood pressure and short term memory loss. I'm just glad I don't have high blood pressure. Mm. All right. So, Cody, your turn. What do you have for us to fix? Oh, Steve, I don't know if I can top that. Uh, well, I'll try you know, it's, it's one of those things <laughs> that, you know, that people always say to you always want to try and, and never give up. But in your case, right. I'm right. You're right. You probably really can't. Yeah. So right. that's good. <laughs> no, I, I um, let's see here. So I believe my pick last week was um, Cursor, the Cursor browser. And yes. I just wanted to reiterate that I love the Cursor browser or Cursor ID. In fact, I, I actually just subscribed to the paid plan and hooked in my ChatGPT4 um, API key. And it like coding, the coding experience has is like it's changing right before our eyes. Like um, in fact, I was reading a newsletter, I think it was from the pragmatic programmer, it could be somebody else. But I guess um, I think his name's Larry Ellison. He's the head of uh, Oracle. Yes. Um, just made an announcement how most of like Oracle's code is being produced through code generation as well, hmm. um, which I which I just thought was like very powerful because that's kind of how 
like the last couple of weeks I've been feeling like I'm almost having this just dialogue experience with my with my terminal window. And it's just like generating if I hit a bug, I can read discuss this bug with my with my, you know, my IDE. And it kind of gives me like this entire document experience of of like why this code is being generated. And, and I'm learning a lot while um, while utilizing it. Um, so that's I don't know. I just wanted to reiterate. Absolutely huge fan of that. Um, and number two pick actually is, uh, you know, I'm giving a, a presentation uh, soon as well. And somebody posted on Twitter recently of how they do their slides using Figma. And if you're not aware of Figma, it's just like kind of the hot um, kind of like design tool right now, similar to like Photoshop, kind of a, a bit more basic, easy to use. And it totally just like, I don't know why I never thought about it, but it's so nice to just use a design tool to build out your slides um, instead of re instead of like using something like PowerPoint where you kind of like the text doesn't ever really want to go where you want it to go. Or, you know, maybe you want to throw in like a little iPhone picture, like something of that nature, like just use like Figma. It's, it's incredibly easy. Um, and the spacing, everything is perfect. Um, so obviously Figma is pretty old news at this point, but uh, there's new fun ways of using it. You know, before we get to Marcus, I'll say a couple of things. One, you were talking about conversing with your terminal, so to speak. Yep. That would be interesting because my conversations with the terminal are usually like, what the heck? And what are you doing? What does that say? No. So And now you that, can say that and it'll respond. <laughs> but it'll respond with, you dummy, here's your excuse. Here's your mistake. No, no it'll be, I apologize for the confusion. Uh, you know, and they'll just explain it. <laughs> it's amazing. It's polite, right? It's yeah. polite AI. Right. Yeah, yeah we... Um, you know, Figma's been interesting to watch over the past few months because they got bought out by what twenty bazillion, yeah, uh, by Adobe. <laughs> Adobe. Yeah, and I know a lot of people. As soon as they heard Adobe was buying it, said, "Okay, forget it. I'm moving on to something else." <laughs> um, it's interesting. We we just brought in a, a UI person, a designer, uh, to help manage our app, and so over the past few days, I've been working with him on some designs uh, that I need to implement. And it's got some really cool functionality because what he'll do is he can put a prototype out there or as forms, and then I can sign online and click his icon. And as he zooms around, looks at the different things, I automatically follow him, right? There's all kinds of really cool uh, interactivity features that, you know, co-developing, however you want to call them, uh, features that are that are really pretty cool. So yeah, my experience, yeah. what I've seen so far, I certainly like it. And one other thing too is... Um, if the designer uses it, and I'm not going to say properly, but I guess in the way that Figma kind of developed it for, um, is it, it'll transition to Flexbox and CSS code very easily. Um, mm. So if they use the feature called auto layout, it'll it'll actually, the way that they design it is basically one-to-one -one with Flex, CSS, Flexbox, and, and everything revolving right. around Flexbox. Um, right. Which which makes like life as a programmer very nice. Sure. Um, yeah. Alrighty, Marcus, do you have any picks for us? Yeah. So I was thinking about it, and I think that the best pick I have is uh, recently I got myself a, a Lego set again. So <laughs> a lot of nostalgia building a, a nice Lego castle, and it's it's a really big one. And actually. 
I, I shouldn't say Lego, I think, because it's it's not really Lego. You know, it's there are a lot of other companies nowadays having all those those brick things. <laughs> and yeah, I really enjoy it because it's it's relaxing after a long day. You can sit there, watch something nice and, and build a Lego castle. It's it's nice. <laughs> Yeah, my son is 12 and he's a real big, he's real big into Legos. We have my older son, who's now 20, uh, when he was growing up, he had bought a number of different uh, sets, you know, like he has this one, uh, was it a Millennium Falcons, Millennium Falcon or TIE Fighter, one of the two from Star Wars. And it was awesome when it put together, but he let it fall apart. And so now all these old sets, they came as sets. We have just buckets of Lego pieces all over the place. My wife categorized them by color and size and stuff. And it's really cool. So you can still build some, some cool stuff. But anyway, his goal, his job goal as of right now is to work for Lego because he oh. likes using Lego so much. So uh, he's got the mind to do it for sure. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see if he does. That's, so, that's probably right. a very fun company to work for. Sure. Mm. Yeah. I imagine it's innovative. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you get to do. If you're the one there making bricks or something like that, maybe not so fun. But if you get to be one of the creative type people, you know, and come up with designs. Then... <laughs> well, material science. They probably have a lot of material science. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Creating sure. plastics. <laughs> for sure. So, all right. Well, thank you, Marcus, uh, for coming on the show and talking about view testing. It's been uh, very enlightening, for sure. So with that, we'll wrap it up say adios and we'll talk to you next time.